0: Glad to have you here. I'm Doug Fullington. I'm the manager of audience education here at PNB, and this is the opening night of our fourth repertory program. It is the program we call Director's Choice, and I say every year. It seems to come around sooner, every time, every year. All of the ballets are chosen by our director, but Director's Choice is a name that has been applied to a particular program every year that either introduces new work or introduces... uh, In addition to a collection of works by particular choreographers, tonight we have a brand new work choreographed for the company by Ezra Thompson, who is a soloist in the company. It's the first thing on the program that's exciting for everybody here. Uh, We have a return of Ulysses Dove, uh, Dove's Red Angels, that hasn't been in the Rep for a number of years. A Slingerland duet, which is a duet by William Forsythe that made a very brief appearance in his new suite, but he pulled it after opening night. We'll talk more about that. And then uh, One Flat Thing Reproduced, also by William Forsythe. that's not been in the rep for almost 10 years. And those are the four ballets. We have Ezra's first, then an intermission, then we have Slingerland and Red Angels paired up with just a short pause in between, second intermission, and then One Flat Thing Reproduced. So let's talk about these in the order that we'll see them. And I'll just try to give you as usual some background on these. These are all relatively new works, particularly Ezra's. So they don't have a history behind them the way say that something like Swan Lake or Sleeping Beauty is gonna have. But I'll tell you what I know. And uh, you can certainly ask anything you'd like anytime and we'll we'll discuss it. And then really we just have to get in the house and, and see these see these pieces. So, The Perpetual State, this is the title Ezra's given to his piece, it's a title that came pretty late in the process, maybe three weeks ago, (laughs) the title came. Uh, Ezra's been in the company a number of years now, he was recently promoted to soloist, he uh, did the end of his education in our school's professional division before he was taken into the company. He's made a number of works. He really started right away with our Next Step program. That's a program in which company dancers choreograph throughout the season on the professional division of the school. That's the highest level of the school, the kids that are really finishing their uh, professional grade education and ready to have jobs as professional dancers. And those are shown each year in June. So Ezra's made a number of pieces for Next Step, and I believe that we list them all in his bio and the program. Uh, he's choreographed also for the school performance. He's choreographed for our sculpture dance presentation, which is a collaboration we've had for a couple of years with Seattle Art Museum down at Olympic Sculpture Park. But this is the first time Ezra's made a work for the company for the main stage series, the subscription series. The Perpetual State he has picked uh, Francis Poulonc's Concerto for Two Pianos, that was written in the early 1930s, a uh, piece of French music, uh, which to my ear is a very glamorous feel, a very 30s sort of feel to it. But at the same time, in the middle movement of the three, uh, Poulenc, uh sort of pays homage to Mozart, and Mozart's uh, Concerto for Two Pianos. This is something that Poulenc said he had on the piano uh, when he was composing this work. He also had works of Ravel and other contemporaries, and I think those influences can be heard in the music. It's a piece of music that has many different uh, sections and feel feelings to it, if you will. Uh, many different sort of atmospheric uh, effects are created in the music. Um, somber, lighthearted, playful, uh, quite serious and dense, uh, very fluid and lyrical. And uh, this afforded Ezra a lot of opportunity to uh, apply to it the narrative that he uh, is putting over in this piece. Uh, as you read in the notes, which are brief but effective, Ezra has... Uh, really been contemplating the death of his father over the past few years. He lost his father very early in his own life, several years ago, when he made a piece for the school performance that uh, was on that subject. And this uh, new piece is as well. And in fact, some of the characters, uh, all of the main roles, in fact, depict people in Ezra's life. And uh, he's fine with you knowing this, so I'm going to tell you. Alida uh, Biasucci is Ezra. So, she is uh, portraying Ezra in this piece, and Jerome Tisserand is portraying Sarah Pash, who is Ezra's wife and also in the court de ballet, but not in this piece. So, Lita and uh, Jerome are the principal couple. There's a second principal couple, uh, Sarah Ricard Orza and Carell Cruz, who uh, are meant to represent Ezra's mother and Ezra's father. Uh, Two soloist roles uh, danced by Sarah Gabrielle Ryan and Ryan Cardea, if I'm correct, represent Ezra's sister and Ryan Cardea, as Ryan (laughs) Cardea. It's Ezra's uh, intention that those two solo roles are uh, the drivers in the action, if you will, perhaps introduce a new uh, section or scene of the piece perhaps are the ones that sort of motivate or drive Lita into the next uh, stage of the work, if you will. Uh, That's all quite literal, but the presentation of the piece is much less literal. But I think it's fine, and Ezra feels it's fine for everyone to know that these are are his intentions. And as he writes in his note, it's not simply a contemplation of... uh, death, but also a contemplation of uh, love in life that balances that out. Uh, The perpetual state refers to a conversation that Ezra had with a childhood friend who also lost his father. And Ezra asked him, do these feelings ever go away? And do they change? And his friend said, well, the way he looked at it, the feelings of loss become a part of your life. And there's something that you're aware of and that you live with. They don't necessarily go away. But uh, they sort of exist with you in a perpetual state. And that is where the title comes from. But there are other perpetual states in life. Uh, The state of being in love and feeling loved and being surrounded by people who love you. So that is uh, Ezra's story in this piece. And he made a point last night. He was with us last night for our uh, PMB conversations, which we hold before the dress rehearsal. And Ezra was our guest. We talked for about 40 minutes about his background and his choreography in this piece in particular, and he drew attention to the collaborative nature of creating a piece in the company in which you are a member. Uh, Reid Nakayama, who is uh, our assistant electrician, is the designer, lighting designer for the piece. Uh, Ezra is credited with the costumes, but he was quick to point out that he really worked uh, very closely with many of the members of our costume shop, particularly Leray Haskell, who's our costume shop manager. Uh, The coloring is uh, black, gray, and reds. Uh, Beautiful dresses for the women that are sheer and underneath them are sort of red, almost maroon, uh, leotards, and the men have a I love the men's costumes. The, they wear turtlenecks, and uh, Jerome, uh, the Jerome's character, wears a, it's a very Gene Kelly-esque kind of shirt with the short sleeves and the pants that come up a little bit higher. has a little bit of a retrospective feel, retro feel to it, and I think that matches the music, which very much is a sort of, to my musical ear, mid-century French piece. It has quite a bit of glamour, the music, uh, on its own, so... Uh, a terrific piece for the orchestra. They love playing it. And our two uh, pianists, Christina Siemens and Alan Damron. Alan's also one of our conductors, are the soloists for the piece. So they were in the studio for the creation process. Uh, the piece was choreographed in about nine days, last August. Uh, we often have time uh, in the summer when the company has just come back to work after summer layoff. We usually have more than enough weeks to get the first program ready for the season, so we take that time to work on pieces for later. It either affords an opportunity for us to bring stagers in from out of town and get a start on their piece, or in this case, Ezra's already here. So it was a great time for him to work, and he choreographed the whole piece. I remember watching it last August, and then he returned to it about four weeks ago and was able to revisit it, made quite a few changes, uh, he cleaned it, as we call it, which means really meticulously going through and making sure everyone's very clear what's to the right, what's to the left, and just how the heads are going to be and where you have some options and, and things like that. Uh, we'll have two casts, two full casts, two full casts of principals and court de ballet. There's 16 uh, people in each cast, so it's about 32 members of the company, which is a good uh, percentage of the company that's involved in the work. I think that's all I'll say. Um, It's always unique uh, to have a company member create a piece. Of course, they're very uh, much a part of the family of PNB, and they know their peers very well, and it's always interesting to see what they choreograph for dancers that they know very well, who they've danced with, and uh, it it, it creates a unique situation that we have tonight. So, first performance tonight of the perpetual state. Then we have our intermission, and then we come to Slingerland Duet. I wrote a program note for this, and half of the program notes just trying to explain the history of this piece. <laughs> William Forsyth is a choreographer that will stay with ideas and projects for a number of years and build on them. So if you read the notes, you'll see there was a Slingerland One, Two, Three, and 4 that built up over the years that uh, Forsyth was with uh, Frankfurt Ballet. I wrote to his administrator and said, How do you want us to uh, give a premiere date for this and what would you do? And she gave a date of April 13th, 2000, which was quite a bit after the four different incarnations of Slingerland had premiered. But she said, This is the first time uh, the piece that he called Slingerland Duet was premiered. And we weren't doing the whole duet, we're just doing one of the potadas de from the duet. <laughs> <laughs> so I find that funny because it's just a lot of uh, a lot of levels there uh, But anyway, we've got it right in the program and uh, What this really comes down to is it's a it's a duet uh, What I would call a neoclassical duet uh, Two dancers set to a string quartet by Gavin Bryars. Gavin B- Bryars is a contemporary still working uh, British composer who uh, wrote a string quartet, and I think it's a great fit for William Forsyth because the string quartet is uh, a long-time genre. We have string quartets going all the way back to the classical era with Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, and onward all the way to this day. And Breyers, though, is, of course, writing in a very contemporary idiom. He's making use of a lot of the high registers of the string instruments. And some strings are tuned, and some are untuned. And they play harmonics, which are very, very high. and uh, likewise, where he's taken a, an old genre and applied to it contemporary ideas about harmony and technique, William Forsyth is working really in a classical idiom here, uh, partnering point shoes. And as someone uh, who works with 19th century ballet, I see many uh, 19th century ballet styles in this piece, but they're performed more quickly. And at different angles, and uh, simply sort of looking at classical ballet through a modern sort of prism or window, if you will, um, it's quite a speedy pas de deux, and that the dancers are moving quickly. To my eye, it's not a frantic pas de deux, but it's moving quickly, and so we see—we're expected to see the pictures and the movement faster, if you will. Forsythe uses a lot of one-handed partnering, which I just love, where the man is partnering the woman just with one hand, often holding her wrist, less uh, of both hands on the waist, which means the dancers can operate further apart from each other, and it gives us, in a way, more to look at, and it um, harkens back to a real skill sculptural approach to choreography where we see in a sense the dancer from all sides and really interested not only in what the legs and feet are doing but the the totality of the body there's a lot of wonderful movement for the upper body and the torso and the head and uh, maybe a little bit more extreme than you would have seen in the 19th century but definitely there's a through line there and i think this is uh a very significant aspect of Forsyth's choreography, and it's going to be completely different from what we see from Forsyth in One Flat Thing Reproduced, where he's going for something completely different because he's working on a completely different kind of movement model, if you will, in an ensemble piece, as opposed to a duet for two dancers that we can trace back, say, through the works of George Balanchine to the works of Marius pettipa and the French uh, choreographers earlier in the 19th century and back even into the 18th, if you will. We first performed this piece in 2015, and it was part of this sort of medley of duets called New Suite, a new suite of dances that Forsyth had put together. Uh, for the ballet company in Dresden, and then we acquired. And he did a little tailoring for us. And Slingerland was one of the duets in there. But when he saw it on stage, he felt it was sort of the odd man out, if you will. So after the first night, he pulled it. We also performed it live with our musicians, who who played it fine. It's really quite difficult. But I think with the the way recordings work, of course, they're very... Uh, close mic to microphones are very close and there's a lot of control and balance and things you can do in post-production to enhance the quality. And I think that Forsyth was so, uh, had those particular sounds so ingrained that he's now asked the piece to be performed to the recording. And uh, it does give a consistency to the performance. Uh, we lose the live music uh, feature but we certainly do uh, hear every uh, high harmonic (laughs) with real clarity that Gavin Friars has written. So I like this connection between the uh, older genre of a string quartet interpreted by a very contemporary composer, and likewise the idea of the classical ballet duet uh, interpreted by someone working in the idiom today. And that's really what we have with uh, Slingerland duet. Uh, You'll see Laura Tisserand and Carell Cruz, I think the tallest man and woman in the company, nearly. So um, it's really clear. It's a lot, long legs and long arms, and they can really do justice to all of the features of the choreography here that Forsyth has given them. We have a pause, and then we are Reviving Red Angels, which is one of Ulysses Dove's works that he made for New York City Ballet in 1994, and Peter Boll was in the original cast. Uh, Also in the original cast was Albert Evans, who died just recently, and Peter has uh, dedicated uh, the performance to his memory, and we've noted that on the front of the casting insert. the role that Jerome Tisseron dances was Albert's role, and the role that Lucien Postalwaite will dance is Peter's role. And Peter is the stager for Red Angels, and when other companies acquire it, he will travel to them and uh, stage the piece. Uh, Ulysses Dove's works are uh, licensed and administered by his uh, brother, Alfred Dove, who is with us tonight. Uh, very pleased to Let's see his work performed again. One of the great features of this uh, work is the score by Richard Einhorn for Electric Violin. And it's performed by Mary Rowell tonight, and it was written for Mary. And I didn't realize it was written for Mary. I was talking to her at cocktail hour upstairs Uh, and she said yes it was written for me between 88 and 90 because Richard Einhorn had read about this rock violinist Mary Rowell he called her up and said is this Mary Rowell the rock violinist she said yes it is he said I would like to compose a piece for you so he wrote the final, the fourth of the four movements that you'll hear tonight for Mary. And he really wanted it to sound like a kind of electric guitar and drum solo, but on the electric violin. So she said he came to her and said, you know, it's supposed to have this sound and this beat and all. And do you get it? And she goes, yeah, I get it. And he goes, well, play it. And she goes, well, I need to work it out (laughs) because there are a lot of things you have to do with your hands and to create these percussive sounds so Mary went away and she worked it out and played it and it was just what he wanted and then uh, a colleague heard it wanted to present it at Lincoln Center but wanted more so he wrote uh, some more movements and then it premiered in about 1990 then Ulysses Dove picked it up and wanted to choreograph it for New York City Ballet and uh, but he didn't uh feel one of the movements was right and asked Richard to write another movement. So the first movement of the four is the new movement written for Ulysses. And then the next three come from the original work. And uh, Mary travels around and plays this piece. Uh, and she's uh, pretty terrific. Um, but our own concert master, Michael Jinsu Lim, will take over next weekend uh, he uh, made an inquiry with Peter Bowl and Emile DeCou, our conductor, last year, and said, you know, I'm really interested in playing this. Now I'm willing to invest in an electric violin. So we wrote to Alfred Dove and we wrote to Richard Einhorn and asked permission for the piece and the ballet to be performed by Mike. And uh, that was given. So Mike uh, will make his debut uh, playing for the ballet next Thursday. But he, apparently he's played it in recital already. And he's been in the studio, too. And he'll play it for us in Paris. We're taking this to Paris in, at the beginning of July. And uh, Mike will be there with his electric violin. So uh, again, like Ezra, there's a lot of personal connections to this piece. Uh, red angels, you'll see why it's called red, because the dancers are dressed in red. But uh, Ulysses Dove described uh, dancers as angels. And uh, that's where the title comes from. It's a very presentational work. The dancers are very much uh, presenting themselves to the audience, whereas in Ezra's work, we're really observing what's going on on stage and the relationships between the dancers. With Red Angels, the dancers are, are very much presenting themselves to us as, as the audience in pairs and uh, in solos and, and finally as an ensemble. So uh, I know this is a piece that Peter enjoyed dancing very much, and he's always happy to bring it back into the repertory. We'll have four casts, so very generous casting for Red Angels. So this is an opening night cast, and then there will be three more as we go through the run. All right, then we come to second intermission, and then we come back for One Flat Thing Reproduced, which is a very uh, different sort of work and one that Peter has been really keen on uh, promoting and giving context to with our audience. So I'll tell you all I know, and if one of these uh, points of uh, connection resonates with you, all the better. Um, This piece is made in 2000, Uh, I think we'll talk about the inspiration first. Part of the inspiration uh, is Robert Scott's two expeditions in Antarctica uh, in the very uh, early part of the uh, 20th century. Uh, They were ultimately failed expeditions, if you know them, because he and his... uh, group, his team reached the South Pole five weeks after the Norwegian expedition. So it was really sort of considered a failure in on the first expedition. They really discovered what was there and knew that the pole where the pole was. And on the second expedition, they got there just a little bit late. And then um, adding insult to injury in a in a very complete way on the return. They missed meeting up with the dog sled team. They had arranged to meet and uh, the entire team died. Uh, They were frostbitten, and they were 11 miles away from the next depot, the next sort of station they could uh, sort of revive themselves at, and uh, they just did not make it. And they knew they weren't going to make it, and they wrote letters to their families and to their colleagues, and they were discovered eight months later. Um, Apparently, this whole idea of Robert Scott's failure has been uh, something of an obsession for Forsyth from about the mid-80s until he made this piece in 2000. Um, I have not spoke to him, spoken to him about this, but Eamon Harper, who's one of our stagers, shared about this in a studio presentation we did uh, dedicated to this work a couple of weeks ago next door at the Phelps Center. One flat thing reproduced refers to Tables. There are twenty tables on stage. We built these tables. They're steel. Uh, we did sort of uh, uh, finesse the corners so they're not too sharp. But there's a fair amount of bruising that's been going on because so the dancers are moving in and around them, and it's quite dangerous, if you will. So the the table is one flat thing, and it's reproduced twenty times. But in a way, it's a real abstraction of the uh, topography of the South Pole in Antarctica and the danger that the team, led by Robert Scott, encountered moving through this terrain. And the style of choreography here, I don't know if it has a name or if it has a name yet, because it's fairly new-ish, but I call it trigger choreography, Um, meaning one dancer Completes a movement that triggers the next movement that triggers the next movement and one dancer might trigger One other person or might trigger five other people But the dancers in this dance are watching for that trigger movement That sign so that they can then fulfill their next movement and so on and that's how the piece works so the dancers aren't counting to a score of music like they would in a in a I guess more conventional piece, but they're relying on one another for the triggers. Some of the triggers are given verbally, and apparently in the teaching process, there are many, many verbal triggers. The dancers might say go, or leg, or different things. Uh, They also will sometimes hit the table, so it makes a percussive noise that everybody can hear. As they approach performance, the stagers uh, eliminate some of those spoken Uh, trigger words. And last night I heard a fair amount of them and then was told today that some of those are going to be eliminated. I kind of liked them because I felt that hearing them somehow defined my distance in the audience from that person on stage. And they seemed closer somehow. And I felt like I was more engaged and close to what they were doing. The dancers' uh, movements take them on top of the tables, under the tables, through the tables, they will partner each other. They will slide. And some of these movements are dangerous and they're risky. But it is, again, an abstraction of this sor- the sort of efforts that this team was making to achieve their goal. Uh, I don't think the ballet is completely about Robert Scott, but it was definitely the inspiration for the setup of the stage and for... Uh, in this instance, the style of choreography. We're going to see this style again in Emergence by Crystal Pite next month. There are a number of passages, ensemble passages, in Emergence. Uh, There's a sextet, there's a quartet of three men and a woman, and uh, one woman in particular, where this uh, sort of trigger style is utilized. One dancer must complete one movement to enable the next dancer to do that. We also saw it in Plot Point in November. Uh, If you remember that work, it's such an unusual piece of movement theater, there was a scene of a a party in a home and they were lifting different dancers and all moving and it was this same style where something had to be accomplished before the next thing could. It wasn't dependent on counts, it was simply dependent on that person uh, making the movement happen. So that's how this dance is put together. Sometimes Forsyth is talked about as evolving dance from one place to another, but I really see this as just something completely different. Slingerland definitely has a history in uh, an older style and is brought forward in a way or changed, representing a, a aesthetic change over time. But One Flat Thing Reproduced is a different idea and a different way of moving. Likewise, the score, and I... I take a little bit of issue that we call the score to this dance music, because I think it's more properly a sound design. These are uh, computer-generated sounds. They aren't meant to replace notes or rhythms, or Mozart's concerto for two pianos, or Poulenc's concerto for two pianos. Uh, It's simply a sound design made by Forsyth's frequent collaborator Tom uh, Willems. and it is manipulated during the performance by Toby, our sound engineer, and it, he makes the changes in the sounds dependent on what he sees. So here it's the movement that comes first, and the accompanying sound comes second. And it is, it is a kind of irritating sound, and it's meant to be. It, it's sounds of friction, uh, sounds of a little bit of distortion, were you, were you guys in Seattle for the Nisqually earthquake? Who all was here? I was at home waiting for my windows to break in the hallway like this. And it's that kind of sound. You know how the earth is... It's loud when there's an earthquake because everything's moving. And there's a little bit of that underlying quality. It's a little bit unsettling, but I think it's supposed to be. I think it's, it's a way, if you will that forces us to participate in this sort of quest that the dancers are working through, uh, this journey that they're working through. And this sound design brings us in by sort of enveloping us with its sound. Uh, And it's a variety of sort of uh, computer-generated sounds. And at different points, when Toby sees certain things, he he will mix in this sound, and then when this... Uh, next element occurs he will mix in this sound so that's the intent there again just something very different it's not a musical score uh, it's not classical choreography it's a way of moving as an ensemble in a kind of risky stylized situation and uh, that is one flat thing reproduced I do want to point out if it does intrigue you uh, There was a project done at Ohio State University, at OSU, that resulted in a website called Synchronous Objects. SynchronousObjects.osu.edu If you were to Google synchronous objects, it will come up. It is an absolutely thorough and complete analysis of this piece. And you can watch it from above. And when someone makes a movement, they've added these lines that jump out from the person and hit the other dancers when they make their movement. You can follow the entire thing. It's just fascinating. Uh, So this whole... uh, work has been uh, analyzed in their voiceover commentaries, and uh, it's pretty neat. Uh, we did, uh, one of our video- intern videographers created a blog on the PMB blog that sort of uh, encapsulates the, uh, the information from that website. So if you're interested in this particular style, uh, you can find it there. Yes, please, I know I'm, gonna, I'm going over time, so. Yes, we have the tables in the studio and we have little pieces of tape which show where they go. Because at the beginning they all drag the, the tables forward um, and they have to be in the right place. So there's little uh, point marks, the spike marks where they put them. And then at the end they drag them away again. So they pull them out and they go through the entire sort of uh, mechanistic journey. Through, through the ice, if you will, and then at the end, they take them away, and then it's over. So uh, it's sort of like almost a ritual that they go through. Yes, please. That's a great question. Is this trigger choreography pre-choreographed? Mostly, yes, but there are certain points where dancers have improvisatory passages. Thank you for being I here and supporting within, the ballet. I think within that, though, there are some parameters of what the choices they can make for the improvisation. At the beginning, uh, you'll see Christian Poppy and Stephen Locke on stage, the two of them for a while, and I believe that some of Stephen's movements are improvisatory. But on the whole, it is choreographed and the movements are set. But the dancers do say it's a little bit different every time because the timing changes. And there is that flexibility, too, because the sound design is based on what they do. So there is a little bit of a, a malleability and mobility to, to the piece. Yes? Have any of the dancers ever been hurt? <laughs> Have any of the dancers been hurt? Price Siddharth kicked a table really hard last week. And uh we had hoped he had not fractured the outside of his foot, but he hadn't, and uh so that was good. but the tables are hard i mean they're they're quite they're quite careful, and there is a is is an element of danger in it that is intentional, but the dancers do work in such a way and prepare in such a way that they can hopefully mitigate that um yes, so it is it is quite exciting yes we'll take a couple more quickly yes, sir. Perpetual state, yeah. A few weeks in August, and I gotta believe that choreography needs a little bit more than a few weeks, like a few years of listening to music and then and playing with your fingers, dancing on the tabletop, and then uh, a few months to uh, do it alone in the park with headphones on or something. Is choreography that easy, you just do it in a few weeks in August? I think the time it takes to choreograph really depends on the person. But uh, Ezra, I think, did live with the music for quite a bit of time, but he said that he really did wait and do the choreography in the studio. He had some general structural ideas and sections, and how many dancers he would use here, and he would make a change when the music changes. But he did say last night that he did make the steps in the studio, um, which is, I think, is great. Uh, That said, he's in a situation where he knows the people really well, uh, and he's working in an idiom in which he's quite comfortable. So he did choreograph it quite fast, but then also had the past month to really look at what he had done and change here and change there. He said he made quite a few changes. So definitely a process, as you say, different for everybody, but a process. Let's do one more. Yes, Synchronous Objects, so S-Y-N-C-H-R-O-N-O-U-S Objects, dot O-S-U dot E-D-U. I looked it up today, so I'd be sure. But if you Google it, that's what will come up. And it's so well done, it's uh, it's just terrific, and I'm sure it was a fun project for them. And if you're a techie, I think it's particularly interesting, so. I'm going to let you go because uh, it's a little after seven. I want to say that Meet the Artist is back and uh, Peter Bull will be down here after the show with Lucy and Postal Wade. So please do come if you'd like to hear from them and comment and ask questions. So